0: always happy to bring to you the best in systemic therapy, whether we're talking about contemporary issues or we're doing a long-form interview with one of the great pioneers in the field. Uh, That We have gotten a a very positive response to those interviews we've done here in the first year of the podcast. And today, uh, someone that, even if you've never heard her speak, you've certainly read one of her books if you've been through any MFT or systemic therapy training program. I'm talking about Monica McGoldrick. Uh, i never met Monica before this interview. So this was a a real treat to really understand her, not only her history, but just how many areas uh, of MFT she touched all the way back from a classic model like Bowenian family therapy, uh, moving through um, feminist critique. Uh, into postmodernism, and she's still very relevant today, as you'll hear her say. Uh, Monica is the co-founder and director of the Multicultural Family Institute that's in Highland Park, New Jersey. She's also an adjunct faculty at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Many of her books, as I said, you've probably, uh, even if you didn't know this was Monica, you've read this in your training programs, including Genograms, uh, Assessment and Intervention, a book that explains the use of genogram mapping with famous examples of people from history like Sigmund Freud to the Fondas and the Kennedys. And she'll talk about in the interview how she got that idea to use famous people. She's also written Ethnicity and Family Therapy, a book that discusses the patterns of 51 different cultural groups. The Expanded Family Life Cycle is a book that explores in a readable fashion the human evolution through the life cycle. Living Beyond Loss is a book about grief and unresolved mourning. And finally, Reenvisioning Family Therapy, Race, Culture, and Gender in Clinical Practice has been a gold standard in the field, outlining the importance of the sociocultural factors that influence family systems in our society today. Monica was born in Brooklyn. She grew up there uh, and spent some time in Salisbury, Pennsylvania. Her ancestry is, given the genograms, we're big into ancestry. Her ancestry is from Ireland. Uh, her mother's ancestors came from West Cork. She's a quite an accomplished academic. She majored in Russian Studies at Brown before receiving a Masters in Russian Studies at Yale. Fell in love with New, New Haven and that is when she also developed her love for working with families. You'll hear her tell in the podcast how she discovered social work and family therapy, receiving her MSW and later an honorary PhD from the Smith College of Social Work. Ladies and gentlemen, I proudly present to you Monica McGoldrick. All right. I am so pleased to be joined on the AAMFT podcast by family therapy pioneer, Monica McGoldrick. Monica, I've been uh, looking forward to this interview for a long time because I've never spoken with you or we've we've never met, but I am a big fan of your work. So so the first question is, how does someone, and I've done some homework on you too, so how does someone with an advanced degree from Yale in Russian end up in family therapy?
1: By being in love with Dostoevsky in the first place. (laughs) That's where it started, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. That it was so,
1: like the psychology of it.
0: Yes, yeah, so tell so, me of your your journey into uh this great profession.
1: Well, it's kind of an oddball story. I was finishing my my master's degree in Russian studies, which was a terminal degree. You then had to it was a new pro, relatively new program. It no longer exists actually. <clears throat> and um I couldn't really get a job because it was very political. Either you were considered commie or you were working for the CIA or something, and neither was my interest. Um, So I really didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, this guy picked me up in uh, a diner in New Haven, and uh, he was – studying to be a psychologist. And I thought, wow, there's something you could study and you'd have something to do at the end because I had never thought about what I would actually do. And overnight, I decided to switch fields.
0: Oh, my gosh. So a, it wasn't even a life.
1: date. It was just like a, a breakfast, encounter. you know, a chance encounter. And wow. uh, and um, my parents were very supportive. Which was really great because I didn't have a good relationship with my mother, but she was fabulous. And it was like, if that's what you want to do, that's it.
0: So, where are we in the timeline? here? like late 60s? So, this is uh,
1: 1966. I graduated from college in 64, two years earlier. This was June of 66, May. May. And uh, so, what was I going to do? It was like I went and I talked to somebody at Yale who was actually a wonderful guy named Jack Levine, who ended up being very helpful to me. And he sort of laughed at me, at my idea that, you know, any chance I could like come into your department and like start now. And he's like, no, but why don't you, why don't you go to the mental health center, which is just about to open you because, you know, you got to be sure that this is what you want to do. And you only decided yesterday. So I, I did, I got a job at the mental health center. I, the day I began the day the doors opened and uh, Rachel Robinson, Jackie Robinson's wife was my first boss and supervisor. That's Fantastic. amazing. The Jackie um,
0: Robinson.
1: The very Jackie Robinson. who was my childhood hero.
0: Oh, so, you, His, so you...
1: he was, he had been my, I mean, my, eighth birthday was spent at Ebbets Field, you know, right over the dugout where Jackie Robinson came in. He was my total hero in childhood.
0: So she was a social worker?
1: No, she was a nurse.
0: Psychiatric nurse?
1: Psychiatric nurse. Wow. And she was the head, uh, the head honcho hiring people for this new community mental health center, which was just starting up. And so I worked there for a year, and I thought I wanted to be a psychologist, but the psychologists didn't seem to be doing anything really interesting. It was sort of, I worked on the inpatient unit, the day hospital, the emergency unit. I mean, I worked in different units during that year, but the psychologists were just called in when you had a problem patient. And they would take a long while and write up some report that nobody could understand. And as we used to think of it, you know, you wheel in the psychologist and you wheel them out and then you still are left with the difficult patient because yeah, they
0: did the assessments. They weren't in the trenches like uh like,
1: Right, know. and they were just right you know, using this very complex language and everybody just sort of shrugged and went on trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? But the social workers dealt with the families, and I I was working as a psychiatric aide, so I got to, you know, basically live with the patients and then to see their families if I was on the afternoon or the evening gift. So, like, whoa, these people are pretty weird families. So, at some point during the year, the social worker was quite overwhelmed, and she asked those of us who were psychiatric aides, is there anybody who'd be willing to volunteer to see families and I'll supervise you? And I was like, my hand shot up. It was like, wow, count me in. Families are the most part.
0: Now at, at this point, have you ever had, had ever been exposed to systemic language or family therapy or because this is in the golden age, the late sixties, early seventies, right? In the, in the heyday had, had, Were you just doing this purely out of uh, kind of experiential learning or did you have some?
1: I knew nothing. I knew absolutely nothing. And um, that first year, I just knew that the family seemed to be definitely involved in the problem. So, but meanwhile, I decided to go to social work school instead of psychology and got into Smith because I didn't want to leave New Haven. And Smith would, you know, you only went there in the summer so I could live in New Haven and have a placement there. And uh, that seemed like a good idea. And the only problem was that people told me that Smith might send you elsewhere if they thought you, I don't know, had problems or needed a change or something. And I had no interest in going anywhere else. I I wanted to stay right there. So the only way you could stay, be guaranteed to stay is if you were in therapy or if you, if you were engaged, well, I wasn't engaged and, but I was in therapy. So I went and asked the therapist, how would you like to say that? I can't possibly leave you because, you know, I'm sort of too desperate and sign a letter saying that I need to stay in treatment with you. Then he said, sure, you know, whatever. So I did. And I got placed in New Haven at one of the Yale hospitals, which was a great first placement because they, at that hospital, it was, it was, um, Run by a psychiatrist who really thought systems and um, <clears throat> the no family could could be hospitalized there if they didn't agree to come basically three, four times a week, twice for group, Saturday morning, every family had to come, and you met in a big group, and all the staff were there and Wednesday night, people met without the identified patient. And other times, as the social work student, I would, you know, see the relatives of the identified person, and meanwhile, I was learning everything about systems from everybody I could, because I was in love with by that time with family therapy and had so your earliest
0: your earliest influences as far as what you read or what you saw in this golden age of family therapy. Who were who were the people that impacted you the most?
1: Virginia Satir. Jay Haley, those were the two biggies. Uh, Strategies of psychotherapy and conjoined family therapy were like my Bible. I mean, they were just like, and the power tactics of Jesus Christ. They were all like great things, you know, great, great, uh, exciting adventures in understanding systems. And then, so I finished school in 69, and continued to work in New Haven. I got a job there and uh in, in the 19- hospital
0: setting or community mental health
1: it was uh actually it was an outpatient uh unit of a Catholic hospital uh run by four Jews and me <laughs> and there were there were um um crucifixes over all the do- all the doors. But we also did see, well, I saw quite a few nuns during that time because it was a time when a lot of nuns were leaving the convent. And that was like a, pl- a safe place where they could go talk about their issues. I never saw any but, uh but we did groups, we did all kinds of things and we saw a lot of families. Uh, and I, I mean, I was just like a family therapist from from the get-go, and so I would go to ortho, I never missed, and I would get to every Virginia City conference I could hear about.
0: I can't think of you, obviously, without thinking of the genogram, and clearly um, you did not invent it, but you certainly uh, revolutionized it and popularized it, so when do you, you know, doing this very... Behavioral based strategic type of family therapy. When do you first come in contact with the work of Murray Bowen and the genogram?
1: 1972.
0: All right, tell me, I, tell me what that I, was like.
1: I heard him give a talk at a conference, a big conference up in the Berkshires. And uh, I was just moving to New Jersey. And uh, I was, <clears throat> I heard him talk about if you, no matter what kind of therapy you've had. can't sit in the room with your mother and feel okay about yourself. You know, you're you're not there. And I thought, this guy's just an idiot. He has no idea. He never, never met my mother and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I was also intrigued at the same time. So I would tune him out and tune back in and think he was an idiot and think, wow, what if that could be true? And at the conference, Phil Guerin, who was one of his
0: disciples,
1: disciples, yeah, uh, was, you know, I connected with him. And by the end of it, I had hired him as a coach. He had hired me to come and teach at their institute in Westchester that they were just developing. And that was the start of my becoming a Bowenite. So,
0: it probably the were there any other females in the, that group of or Oh
1: yeah, Betty Carter.
0: Oh, we talk about Betty. Yes, yeah, so you and Betty, that's where you first met Betty. And... Yeah. She yeah.
1: she was there. Peggy Pap was there, but she wasn't quite she was interested but not she wasn't I mean Betty was I didn't really connect with Betty until you know later than that, but so, um, so
0: you're there, and then it's very different kind of family of origin work. Uh, and you've mentioned your mother several times. I'm, I'm curious. You know, Bowen would always say, you know, the therapist cannot get the client system past the level of differentiation where they were at. So, I am wor- wondering uh, how that work uh, made you look at your own family of origin. And I always ask the model developers on this sh- on this show to kind of talk about their what it was like growing up how their becoming a therapist impacted their relationships their own family so i am curious about your relationship with your mom
1: well it it totally transformed it i mean bowen i'm sure that's why i do what i do because uh understanding bowen's ideas and and working on my own relationship with my family transformed everything i mean i came to see my mother totally differently, my whole family differently and changed my relationship with her. And I've been, you know, on a journey ever since to um enthuse other people about the potential of systems ideas to, you know, help you see your relationships and your life differently and position yourself differently
0: through that understanding. You're so well known for the genogram. Did you immediately Gravitate toward that as far as oh, absolutely building it into your interviews. Anybody's Always, ever- absolutely,
1: absolutely. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't be working a la Murray Bowen and not be using genograms. Everybody did, and it it was part of my coaching. It was part of what I did with my clients. It was part of because I was already teaching uh, family therapy right from the get-go in New Jersey. I I Got a job at the medical school and began to supervise others in working with families and We all did genograms right I mean,
0: every chart had a genogram that was it and was was he a difficult guy to get along with you know who is he Murray Oh, not for me, I
1: thought he was fantastic. He was so generous uh with his time, he was just. He was great to me. I think he was not as generous to his own people as he was, but I, I found him wonderful. I mean, he was just terrific. Uh, I I At a certain point, after a couple of years working with Phil, he said, you know, that I should really go and experience Bowen directly. I mean, I used to go to the Georgetown conferences, but that was only once a year or twice a year or something. And <clears throat> Bowen had a one-day-a-month conference that he did for whoever at the Medical College of Virginia. And I began commuting from Rutgers to to Medical College of Virginia. You know, it was a big, big drive. Uh, every month and then I began staying an extra day and Bowen was very generous in that regard too that they had a video set up and if I went a day early I could connect to them and sit in some classroom and watch his videos and and tell the the video guy okay can you move it ahead I've seen enough of this session you know can you show me the next month and I did that for years, for four years. That, it was a fantastic. You remember that is one experience. of the
0: most clinically rich. I mean, you've had all these great formative experiences, but that had to be that was certainly worth the drive.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and I would every time. I mean, even if I sometimes thought, you know, boring session this was you know and like i wasn't really sure what he was talking about on the way home i would find myself thinking about oh i gotta be in touch with my aunt i gotta figure this out i gotta you know write to this one write to that one so that it was always triggering ideas about things that i needed to understand better in my own life
0: when did you get the idea to write the genie book to really really the bible on how to construct uh, and assess and interpret a genogram, I know that probably many people listening to this podcast, many will be uh you know graduate students, many will be young professionals or people that are been out in the field a long time, but probably everybody has seen multiple of your books that we'll talk about, but certainly the genogram book is is one I still have and, and use often if I'm going to construct a genogram. When did you get the idea for that
1: well i um I was very interested in in The potential of genograms for research, I wasn't a researcher, but I really thought uh, genograms would make research possible that you really could do no other way, that you could have clinical documentation of family patterns through the use of genograms in ways that you could really learn about systemic patterns. But it needed to be computerized, and I knew nothing about computers. And, uh, but I kind of developed the dream of computerized genogram. And so I would talk to people about it. And um, meanwhile, you know, would try to study the genograms of my own cases and my students' cases and so forth. And then one day uh, I went to an ortho meeting in Boston. And uh, by the time I registered, uh, or signed into my room I had three messages from friends saying you won't believe it somebody has computerized the genogram you must run down to the exhibit hall do not check in do not do anything else just go down there you won't believe it and it was Randy Gerst. and um and he had in fact done it he wasn't even a Bowenite. he was just like a person who lived in DC he was he had been living in dc and you know went to a few bow things and he just saw genograms and thought yeah this is good you know but it would be so much easier if you computerized it because every time you draw it and you learn something new you have to start over and uh and he had a little classic mac uh And he had done it, and it was like, wow, this is fabulous. So then he and I got together because we both fed each other's enthusiasm about um, this should be computerized. We should really do something with this. And um, we tried for years to get um, research uh, funding to get somebody to really computerize it as more than a graphic. And we never really succeeded. But along the way, we were doing some little research things. I was working with uh, this other friend of mine, Michael Rohrbau, And uh, he said, you know, you really need to write, you know, people talk all the time about genealogy, but you really need to write something about that. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's true to really explain it to people, why it's such an important thing. And I couldn't write the paper because it was, um, if I tell you my genogram, you'd be interested. But if, if you know me, or I'll be interested in your genogram. But if, as a general proposition, it's too much detail. It's really hard to, to convey what's the exciting part of genograms um, in too general a way. So, meanwhile, this is a detour from this story, but it, I guess it's relevant. I had decided I should get a PhD uh, to like improve my credentials or whatever, and uh, so I went to this university without walls, uh, called the Fielding Institute out in California.
0: Were we in the eighties now?
1: Uh, this is yeah, nineteen eighty to eighty four. This was nineteen eighty when I met Randy and and when when he and I started trying to get funding and whatever. And so I started at the Fielding Institute, and they had sixteen areas I that you had special you had to get uh, certified in, and starting with Freudian theory, and I was like, oh my god, back to that. I did that already. I went to Smith. It was very Freudian school. And like, I can't bear, you know, I can't bear to go back to that. Only one field was, was family therapy.
0: Exactly. Once you think systemically, it's hard to think any other way. You could not go backward.
1: Right. So uh, I finally came up with the idea, what if I did Freud's genogram? Could Would you pass me in Freudian theory? I could talk about why his family might explain his ideas. And they said, okay. And then there was another, a whole other field called neoanalytic thinking that I had to get certified. in. so I thought, well, okay, what about if I do Jung and Adler and Karen Horney? And they okayed that. And then I just got too interested in those people and their genograms. And Then that became also the solution for this paper that I never could write because I thought clinical cases are too complicated to explain, but famous people, people would be interested. And that became the solution. So then I never finished the program, but that became the genogram. Then it was more than a paper. It was like, you know, it became a way to tell the stories that you could use famous people. And people could see patterns that maybe they hadn't noticed and it would be like, wow, you know
0: What that's... what did Murray Bowen think of you expanding on his work in that wonderful way you did with that book?
1: I have no idea.
0: You never I can
1: about tell him. you I can tell you I can tell you this much. Around the same time I was um also moving towards culture and gender yeah, yeah, and so forth and and Murray was not he was especially not enthused by my interest in, in ethnicity. He thought that was a real waste of time. And even on the life cycle, he was like, yeah, it's not a bad idea, but, uh, you know, I've seen <laughs> he did He wrote a nice forward for us, but I mean, he was not taken with the idea. I would consider myself, I know Bowenites totally don't, they think I left the religion long ago, but... I would consider there is not a single idea that I am interested in that I do not see as totally connected to Bowen Theory Still, to this minute. And, Gender, and, race, yeah. culture, social class,
0: all of it. So you just expanded the lens of the Bowen Theory.
1: It's like he was thinking systemically about how one one person affects the other, how nature affects us, how we affect nature back and how it's all connected and there's n- nothing that's not connected. It's all part of the same thing.
0: In 2019, you may not see a lot of Bowenian family therapists as they claiming their sole orientation, but it's hard to argue with those ACE principles. They they hold the stand the test of time. So it's glad to hear you say that. But as you expand it, so let's, let's talk about those things you just mentioned. The family life cycle. I think at that point, probably the only other person that had talked about life cycles haley talked about you know families or systems running into problems at these nodal transitions but talk about how you and betty um work together to expand that framework
1: okay well first of all betty and i came together around an article that we wrote for this book that phil was doing on family therapy uh Phil was, he saw himself and he was seen, I think, in those days of, I'm talking the late 70s, um, as kind of taking Bowen's ideas and kind of expanding them. And uh, he forced Reddy and me to uh, write this paper on the family therapist on family and family therapy with one person. And so he forced us, basically, to become friends, which was great, because, uh, you know, we struggled at first to do that.
0: It wasn't a natural to fit? To please
1: him. It was, Well, we were just, like, really different. And uh, um, I, she was a character and a quite larger-than-life person. Um, and well i like to collaborate but i can't say it was difficult but it was i mean she was at a different place in her life and uh but we became extremely good friends from and from there on until basically she retired and and eventually you know got dementia and died um, she was my closest friend uh in so many ways that I just discussed all kinds of things with her. I mean, I was also extremely close friends during all those years with Froma Walsh. I'd gone to school with her and Carol Anderson.
0: you bring that up so another thing I wanted to play word association with tell our listeners about Stonehenge.
1: Oh, yeah, okay, and that was a place where I wasn't connected to Betty Stonehenge. I might tell you that uh. I, I, it's an odd way that that whole thing about Stonehenge started. I was, I had, I was interested in ethnicity and I had discovered Ireland and that I was Irish and I was like a complete enthusiast. Every summer I would go to Ireland. I was trying to find family therapists to connect to. And if anybody was going, I would hook up with them. So Lynn Hoffman was going to Ireland and I didn't know her very well, but I said, okay, want to go together and we'll travel around. So she said, sure. So we traveled around and while we did, she talked about her life and was like, oh my God, she wrote Conjoint Family Therapy. I never even knew that. I thought that was Virginia's here alone. She gave Minuchin the name Structural for what he was doing. She did I mean, Jay Haley certainly did his own writing as well, but you know, her relationship with Jay Haley was very significant, and in the things that he did, and you know, and here she was this person who totally—I mean, satire was not appreciated, but she wasn't either.
0: Oh, I think Lynn Hoffman is is vastly underappreciated, even in our textbooks and our history of our profession. Absolutely,
1: films. she was really.
0: So I'm glad to hear you mention. Um, how kind of unsung she was. So she was a big influence on you as well.
1: So she began talking. She was going to meet with different teams, as because you know teams were coming in, and she was like tra- traveling around, meeting people and whatever. And it was like, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great to bring some of these great women together? And Betty and Olga and Peggy Pat and Marianne Walters had a couple of years earlier, developed the Women's Project Nineteen eighty, They had developed, and <clears throat> I was even seeking maybe to do a project with them. But anyway, I got the idea from Lynn of like doing this conference. So I figured, you know, the Women's Project, I'll, you know, I'll talk to them. That could be something we could do. So I went and I talked to Betty the minute I got home about this idea. And she said, oh, that's really great. I said, well, so why don't we do it with the Women's Project? And she's like, well, you know, I got to talk it over with them, whatever. So it's like, sure, you know, so you will talk to them. and uh, So she's, she then said that I was invited to meet with them and present the idea. So I go to meet with them and present the idea, which is nothing. It's a basic idea. Why don't we women get together and talk? <laughs> I mean, because, like, we don't get appreciated and, We don't talk to each other because we're always looking for, you know, the great men or whatever. And uh, why don't we just meet ourselves? So I presented the idea and they turned it down and said, one of them said there was no one out there they wanted to meet, which I thought was really weird for a women's group. So uh, I thought, oh, well, whatever. So I went home and called uh, Carol Anderson and Roma and said, hey, you want to, put on a conference uh, on women. What do you think? So they said, sure. So that's where it came from. That's what we did.
0: And Stonehenge was in Connecticut.
1: Yeah. Stonehenge was at a place where my husband and I used to go for, like, our anniversary. It was a wonderful inn, old inn in Connecticut.
0: What are your memories? Did any great ideas that led to your your further writings come out of that?
1: Oh, enormous. Enormous. Profound profound changes in my whole way of thinking. Uh, and very, very important, uh, the women at Stonehenge, and we have many of us talked about it since, ever any time we were ever anywhere at a meeting and saw one of the other people, we would always feel like we had an ally. No matter what thing might be going on, we felt together it it just changed the dynamic dramatically it was it was a fantastic experience just absolutely fantastic there were lots of ideas that came out of lots of things got published as a result i mean from it and carol and i did a, a book women and families which i'm still very proud of it's not you know we we didn't follow it up and it would need to be followed up it should be followed up but Lots of the other people there wrote things, as a result of collaborations they developed through people they they got to know at Stonehenge. It was huge, really important. It
0: must have been an amazing time. So you know, when I think of you, right, you could put you your career has been so storied and spanned multiple decades. When I when I think of the family therapy textbook, you could put you in the family, family of origin Bowenian chapter. We could put you in the feminist critique. We could put you in the multicultural, ethnicity, and gender chapter. I mean, you really, your diverse uh, interests and the scope of your career is really extraordinary. I can't think of really anybody else that has has touched as many different areas. What do you think, uh, a couple of questions here as we go, what do you think since you started in the profession in the late 60s through the golden age of family therapy, through the feminist critique, the 80s into the postmodern, what do you think the biggest changes in the practice of family therapy, in the profession of marriage and family therapy from when you started into now?
1: Oh, that's a depressing topic because what I think is that very powerful moneyed forces have had a very evil influence on healthcare and mental health care and that systems, as we came into the field and were so excited about, is basically dead. It's not it's really hard
0: do you identify more as a social worker a family therapist a family
1: therapist yes. no no question no question but i do come from social work and i did struggle to try to figure actually what the theories were and there weren't very good theories i would say you know not anything you could sink your teeth into like bone theory for example or you know or or many other systemic ideas that you know i absorbed growing up and i i think it's a huge loss that they didn't just take over when when psychiatry kind of died because of big pharma and the insurance industry and managed care and all that uh Social work should have said, never mind, you know, about the others, let's here we go. Let's 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 take these ideas and run with them because so many of the originators in that field actually were also social workers.
0: Which yes, is true. They were. Of course. I mean uh MFT was a motley crew for people from different professions, but certainly on the, the ground floor were the, the social workers. And I think sometimes I when I talk to my colleagues that uh that uh, are social workers, you know, they think of, of course, there's this commonality of systems, but they think of more of the macro and, and family therapists think more of the micro and doing the work with the the family system. But there are so many, so many commonalities when you think of what needs to happen um, to bring family.
1: People need to collaborate. Like your, your very program is a great idea. I heard of one One thing recently I went to, I was invited to um, the University of Georgia in Athens uh, by Jerry Gale. And uh, it was the 35th annual conference of social work, family therapy, and counseling. Because counseling also, I mean, that's like, you know, sort of we got all this social class status and who's ahead and which profession has, you know, more prestige, and so forth, and so on, rather than focusing on, you know, where are the good ideas, how, how can we get them and use them, and how do we support the people who need our help, which is, to me, all I'm really interested in.
0: What's well, clear in listening to you, 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 are, you were passionate from an early age, and these early experiences working in the hospital, all throughout your career, to these great collaborations. When you think about I was just going through looking at how many, if I just name some of your books, listeners will know that you either co-authored or wrote yourself. I mean, this is just a few. There's re-envisioning family therapy. There's ethnicity in family therapy. There's the genogram assessment and intervention book we talked about earlier and the family expanded family life cycle. What do you want your legacy to be? Because, I mean, you've touched many people, collaborated with many. What do you want your professional legacy in our profession to be, Monica?
1: I don't care particularly about my own legacy, so to speak, as much as I I care that systemic ideas not get lost. I recently um well let me let me say um two things about that. Uh I was at a conference uh in Aberdeen, Scotland the other week and uh I saw this old video of um John Weakland <clears throat> from MRI, and he was very, uh, you know, he was he was kind of on his last legs and whatever was this, uh, some. I don't really know the context, but Steve DeShazer was there and and Jay Haley and whatever, and and s asked him, you know, John, if you just had like a year to live. And one thing you could do more in your life, what would what would that be? And Wakeland said, uh, well, I don't think of myself as a preacher, really, but I think these systemic ideas are so powerful. And I would just go around trying to convince people to pay attention to them and to forget all the bullshit that's, you know, they otherwise seem to be preferring to pay attention to, because I just don't get that. And that would be my thought, is I don't understand. Systemic ideas seem so important to our very survival. I cannot understand why so many other forces are having so much power to keep us from paying attention. So that's
0: as I said, once you think systemically you can think no other way. I really believe that. When you think of the impact... Can I tell you
1: one, one more do. thing before Please you do, sure. Okay, so at this conference, uh I showed a a little video that I had made with we, we were talking about the history of family therapy at previous uh International Family Therapy Association conference in, in Malaga a couple of years ago with some really creative women who uh, were talking about the development of family therapy in Russia, Turkey, and Hungary. And my friend media credo and I were the discussants and we were feeling really depressed about family therapy in the U S and, you know, kind of for all the good ideas. It's not a good time in family therapy here. And so we were feeling pretty depressed about responding to these presentations, but we spent five days in, in Barcelona and we went to see all these fabulous things of Antonio Gaudi and we got completely enthusiastic. And so I made a, a little movie about using Gaudi as an inspiration for the future of family therapy because Gaudi knew that all the fabulous things he did in his lifetime wouldn't ne- would never be completed in his lifetime and that it would take generations who would bring new ideas to, you know, finish his creations. And that's what I think about systemic. I, I don't care as much about whether I get remembered or anything I thought gets remembered, but I want systemic ideas to become at the, to, to come to be at the core of how we think about helping people. And solving our human problem because I that's how I that's what I utterly believe
0: beautifully said and and what um even if you don't want to take credit for it what uh, do you think about the evolution of as far as your impact on uh gender and culture how have we done as a profession uh as far as expanding our lens in that way
1: Uh, as a profession well as a profession I think we're we're, we're so stuck as you know kind of a at the margins of society in terms of our status um so i think that's a real problem that you know um money talks and and money and power are male arenas still and yet and we're seeing a you know potentially very exciting new shifts politically but i think while we've made great progress in the profession and also in our world gender you know in terms of understanding the role that gender plays because when i started in family therapy gender wasn't even a category you know never mind an equal category you know what i mean that like there could be Uh, an entire presentation of 16 white men at a conference and people would think, wow, that was great. And they wouldn't even think that there wasn't a single woman or a single person of color there. Nowadays, at least we don't feel comfortable. We still maybe do that predominantly, but we at least are feeling uncomfortable about it or more uncomfortable about it. I mean, I I think there's still a terrific pressure from the dominant groups to have it be white therapy for white people, male white people especially, and that women's needs are not obviously taken into account here or around the world. Do
0: you still do family therapy? Um, yeah. How often? And, and as much that,
1: as I can.
0: And um, the good thing about, if no one's seen Monica work, I highly... Recommend she's made well, countless training tapes, but if you really want to see how to, I'm thinking of this tape you made, oh, probably about ten years ago, and you're working with this African American gentleman who doesn't really see how his he's getting ready to have a child, and he really doesn't see how doing a genogram or understanding his family of origin is relevant, and by the end of the hour you've created this beautiful picture and it, like a light bulb goes off of the guy. You know
1: oh, that... I, I know that. You know that I made a follow-up video last year. Ten, ten years later with him and his wife and his wife's father. Yeah.
0: Listeners of our podcast know these model developers, one of their common factors is, is the passion and the way they thought of the field and their work early on in their career. It very much endures to the later stages of that career. And that is certainly true in you, Monica McGulcher. I have one last question to ask everybody else. So, you know, we talked a little bit about your mother earlier and the Bowen kind of really opening you up to all these things, thinking your family of origin. So what about your family of procreation, what have done?
1: Well, so my husband is an engineer. He started out as a physicist and I'm never aware of his, he never wants to socialize with my family therapy Buddies, 'cause we talk too much about stuff, but he's a he's a incredibly intuitive and uh he always knows uh picks up the vibes on you know who let us down, who didn't come through with something they were doing, who was like talked too much, you know are are various, the foibles of the people in the field, even though he spends no time directly with them, but he always knows. And uh, I would say he has uh, become an enormously better husband uh, over the decades. We're almost 50 years married. Next year will be 50 years. Uh, and... He taught me a lot about culture. He comes from Greece and grew up there and he still you know, has family there. And, um, and I think we've had our separate spheres and that's been good for me uh, because I think had I married somebody that I could have shared more with, it would have been hard as a woman. I didn't even realize that for many, many years. But I think the fact that he had nothing to do with my sphere of life I think was a blessing really and my son uh makes movies for the NBA and uh I adore my son Uh, he was the most fabulous baby child person you could ever want uh and he was in his earlier days uh what they used to call an after kid because we used to go every year to the family therapy meetings. And he was, he was one of the kids who, you know, grew up knowing my friends and having to sit through sort of boring dinners. Uh And he has a son who's one and a half who I'm just totally in love with as another, I was with my generation, son. Another generation.
0: Another add, to generation. Your, add to your gene.
1: <clears throat> and I'm, I'm wondering what in the world is, is the world going to be like for him? And I'm just, just hoping and praying that, you know, um, we make the world a better place by the time, you know, his challenges really come along when it, he's an adolescent and so forth, you know, cause we're not, we're not taking care of. Them.
0: Well, I hope so too. I mean, I have learned uh, so much this hour. You really have, uh, in your own kind of uh, professional and our own professional genogram is marriage and family therapist in this profession. You've certainly touched many and impacted and collaborated with many. Uh, do you have any, any last things, uh, words you want to leave our listeners with? Because a lot of people will listen to this and sometimes, you know, you only read about someone or you read their books or you see their videos, but this is really uh, kind of personalized. It's why I love doing these interviews, the the really important people behind the models behind the writing, any final words, Monica you want to leave our listeners with, please plug anything you want to at the end if, if anything your project you're working on or you would like people to check out, let them know
1: on 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 YouTube um anybody you can go and look and put in Multicultural family Institute and watch these little videos
0: and what will I see in these videos Cause I'm gonna go well, them. like
1: there's one about step families and in-laws. There's one about working with couples. There's one about work about immigrant families. We're just they're just like little 15 minute videos where they're in in process, and we want to make more. We want to do more on the life cycle on and and also clinical videos. Most of my videos are that are available, like uh, the harnessing the power of genograms, the one you were talking about, and the and the other one um, that that I made with with that family more recently, uh, they're available with psychotherapy.net. But, but these others are just free. Anybody can just
0: help yourself
1: and give me any feedback that you want.
0: Yes, and um, another thing, a question. Another fascinating interview in the Pioneer series on the AAMFT podcast. Many thanks to Monica McGoldrick. Uh, such an amazing career, and I really appreciate... During that hour, she talked about some people and things that probably aren't remembered uh, as fondly as they should be in our MFT history, Um, namely her association with Betty Carter. Uh, And if those of our listeners newer to the field have not read about Betty Carter and what she did with gender and power, certainly uh, kind of a must read to your emerging MFT skill set. Also, the Stonehenge Conference, I think a very influential meeting of some of the strongest female voices in the field, which, as you heard Monica say, so many great ideas came from, probably doesn't get its proper place in the history books. That happened in 1984. If you want to find out more about Monica McGoldrick, you can go to multiculturalfamily.org. That's MulticulturalFamily.org. That is the website of the Multicultural Family Institute. And on there, in addition to hearing more about the things that she talked about in the interview, you can see her videos and DVDs for sale of, of which two she mentioned in the interview. Monica wanted me to pass along that, again, the software that she prefers to use, which is almost a very popular question, is GenoPro, which she has been associated with almost since the origin and you can see her doing that as far as the creation of a genogram using the GenoPro software if you go to her YouTube page which she referenced and all you have to do on your YouTube browser is put in multicultural family institute and when you put that in you will get uh, a selection of videos including and they're all very easy to digest between 10 and 20 minutes long Step families and in laws, working with immigrant families. You'll see a reflection on Stonehenge, um, thirty years later. Triangles and Detriangulating and Cultural Competence 101. Very good, free and easy to check out. The Pioneer series this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast and I'm I'm just still twenty years into my career as much of a student, and uh, appreciate the history of our profession as anyone. It's a real treat to bring this podcast to you and to be part of the AAMFT. If you want to reach us, please drop us a line. Give us some feedback. We love that. The email is communications at aamft.org. The Twitter handle is at the AAMFT. Follow the conversation you enjoyed this interview, you can also go into the archives wherever you find your favorite podcast, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and you can see our back episodes, which alternate between focusing on influential figures in the field, like Monica Ngojic, and informed topics like multicultural competency, telehealth. I'd like to give you a good mix between the personalities and the content shaping the past, present, and future of systemic therapy. Until next time, stay systemic, my friends.